today we are starting our series on the Psalms. The series will take us through May, so we're going to spend some significant time uh, in this book. And I, I do want to say, uh, Emma, uh, you know, occasionally um, somebody shares something during sharing a movement, and you, you kind of just feel like you could close up and worship God without the sermon. That was that was really great, and it was a great reflection on. Um, really what the Psalms speak to when we are in need of help and we are in need of refuge. Um, God is there in the midst of our pain. So thank you, Emma. Um, but I, So I, I want to spend a little bit of time explaining why we are uh, working through the Psalms. And there's really two big reasons. The first um, is around our preaching schedule. When we sat down to look through what we were going to address in 2020, um, we, always, we always pick... Um, a topical series for the summertime. Uh, you know, we, we go through books in the in the spring and in the and in the fall winter, um, but we like the summer to be topical, and we wanted the the subject to be uh, that of mental health. Um, most of us have we either are in a place where we are experiencing experiencing mental health challenges. Um, or we have somebody in our family, in our sphere of friends that are experiencing or have experienced mental health challenges. And I think we're, we're all aware of the increasing reality of mental health problems and challenges in our culture. Uh, and, and we're not going to get into you know, the details and the stats and the specifics of all that here in, in this series. Um, but our assumption, so we, we want to we spend the summer series on that, but we want to enter into that series with a... Uh, with a um, some some solid biblical work, and the the church, the Holy Spirit, the gospel have a lot to contribute to addressing uh, mental health problems. And we and we felt like if if the churches are not paying attention, if the churches of God are not paying attention to this issue, um, we're going to miss out on really what is the most significant, one of the most significant pressing needs facing our culture. Um, I do want to say on the front end that, that our culture recognizes uh, a scope of mental health challenges that basic things like sleep and exercise and diet and mindfulness can address. And it also recognizes that there are things that mental health professionals need to be involved in. And we take the same t approach. Um, there are things that, I mean, the, the, the Spirit of God uh, who performs miracles and, and has control over the physical world through as Jesus did. Um, and the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the, the church, uh, these, these possess limitless power in, in addressing the problems of this world, including our mental health problems. But we also recognize that, that God has um, blessed people with, with wisdom, uh, scientists, medical health professionals, doctors, uh, to address these things as well as they, as they affect uh, our physiological uh, beings, our bodies. And so it's, it's called the integrationist approach. And again, we'll get into some more of the, the technical aspects of that uh, this summer. But I just wanted to point out that, um, that there is a lot that the scriptures have to say. Uh, about our about our mental health and Psalms um, is an excellent resource for covering all of these things. Um, an old scholar named Gerhardus Voss. He was a he was a, a Dutch 
reform scholar, stated some decades ago, he said this, he says, in the Psalms, whatever our mood, whether we are exultant or downcast, vigorous or weary, penitent or believing, we can always find our hearts mirrored in the Psalms. It needs no process of reasoning to make their sentiments our own. Here the language of the Bible comes to meet the very thoughts of our heart before we can even clothe them in language. And we recognize that we could not have expressed them better than the Spirit has here expressed them for us. So we believe that giving some time to the Psalms will strengthen us biblically to more effectively address um, the the issue, the subject of, of mental health in the summer series. So that's the first reason. The second reason why we look or want to spend some time in the Psalms um, is that we spend a lot of time as a church um, teaching and reinforcing the, the gospel, the teachings of Jesus Christ. We do this in, in every aspect of our lives together, in our house churches and redemption groups on Sunday mornings. Um, we are uh, heavily emphatic on making the word of God fully known, and we work hard to fulfill that stewardship. And we work hard, I think, to, to make those, those teachings as, as practical as we can um, because they are intended to be very practical. They are intended to affect um, the, the, the details and the intricacies of our, of our real lives. However, uh, the, Psalms, the Psalms, I think, take it one step further. While many of the Psalms are, are instructive, they, they're, they're like maybe some of the epistles or the Proverbs or other wisdom literature, overwhelmingly, the, the Psalms are, are windows into the lives of, of real people expressing where they're at. They are oftentimes calling out for help. They are oftentimes expressing uh, exuberant joy. Uh, Seth said to me just a few months ago, he said, you know, the Psalms teach people how to struggle how to struggle well. And I totally agree with that. They also teach us how to celebrate well. They are the divinely inspired words of God expressing the hearts and minds of people who are striving to serve and and please God in in all of their lives. They're trying to live well on this earth, um, and they are desperately longing to see the power of God made real in the circumstances of their lives that are bringing them suffering. We're also, we also see in the Psalms um, words that are expressing uh, feelings and, and a life that is uh, so full of joy. Uh, they are expressing such a sense of God's presence that, that oftentimes it seems like they might even be in another world outside of the darkness and the sin and the pain of life. So the Psalms teach and model for us how to live before God uh, in an honest and healthy way. Personally, they have been of immeasurable help to me from the early days of my faith, and I would say that the Psalms were really critical for me in, in, in taking the, the words of, of forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, those words became real because of my reading and studying of the Psalms. And I continued along for God to, to reveal his, his wisdom and power in my life and in the life of my family, in the life of this church, in the life of the people that, that God has put 
in this world uh, that I am responsible for, the, the, the Psalms are still uh, immeasurably valuable in expressing these longings. They have an incredible ability to connect doctrine and teachings to the realities and the struggles and the pains and the joys of our everyday lives. So in essence, to sum up why are we going through the Psalms, we are really pursuing the Psalms in order to become better worshipers of God. Worship not in the sense of better singers, um, better musicians in, in the act of worshiping God from a musical standpoint. I mean, that's part of it, but really worship in the sense of Romans chapters 12, 1 and 2. Our, our spiritual service to God, our spiritual worship to God is, is, is a life dedicated to Him and, and in pursuit of Him and unity with His people. And so the Psalms really bring us into this greater experience of, of worshiping God. So we're looking at Psalms 1 and 2. Um, they are considered the introduction. It's a two-part introduction to the book of Psalms. Now, uh, in your text is the ESV translation on the screen, and what Nathaniel read is a translation by Robert Alter. Robert Alter is a um, professor emeritus at, at Berkeley and considered a, one of the foremost Hebrew language scholars in the world, and he uh, made his own translation of the, of the Hebrew Bible with the in, interest in maintaining some of the 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 poetic and the um, oh, the word is slipping my mind the the rhythms of what the original literature had and so uh, he he just he kind of he came to the conclusion many years ago that a lot of the English translations just did not reflect um, some of the poetic beauty that the that the original language does so he's has. Has, well, he's successfully, I think, accomplished the goal of of bringing some of this uh, poetic nature um, back to the to the Old Testament, and so um, as an as an introductions. So the 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 Old Testament. Hebrew Bibles divided into three segments: the Law, Prophets, and the Writings. And Jesus says at the end of, of Luke chapter twenty four that that the that everything in the, in the law, the prophets, and the psalms, that's the psalms are also kind of referred to as um, capturing all of the writings. So the writings are the, are the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, and so the psalms are often referred to as the, the catch-all for this, this category of books. And so Jesus says, all of these things are written about me, okay? And, and the, the psalms are, are, or the writings, are really... Um, continuing the theology that comes out of the, especially the law and the prophets. And so um, here at the front end of the book of Psalms, it is a really an introduction to all of the writings. It's an introduction to the Psalms, and they are continuing on with the message of the law and the prophets, which therefore also then gives us a kind of a lens or an interpretive um, framework to interpret the other 148 psalms. Okay, now we're not going to go through all 148 psalms. We're going to go through about 20. Okay, and we're going to, we're going to start with 1 and 2. We're going to end it with 150, all right? And we're going to try to fairly provide perspective on the full scope of what the psalms are addressing. Okay, it's not going to be a perfect job, but that's, that's our goal, all right? So, 
let's see what these themes are that, that Psalms 1 and 2 bring up that continue the theology of the, 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 the law and the prophets and that introduce us to really what the prominent themes are going to be uh, in the whole book of Psalms itself. So Psalm chapter 1. Now one of the reasons why I like Alter's translation so well is that um, rather than beginning with the word blessed, okay, which if you read your ESV or NIS, NASB or NIV, most of the English translations start out with this word blessed. And that has a, you know, it really is not a word that makes sense to us anymore. Literally, the term is happy. Happy. Daniel, so, but, but one of the challenges, I think, why the English translations don't use the word happy is because we don't really know what it means. So what does it mean to be happy? So Daniel Hebron, he's, one of, one of, he's a contemporary philosopher at St. Louis University, PhD and writer, and he specializes in the subject of happiness. And he says that to be happy is to have a favorable emotional condition. Okay? Uh, it's roughly the opposite to anxiety and depression. Um, and he says that there are essentially four dimensions to a proper understanding of happiness. First, there is the, the dimension of our felt emotions, which I think everybody would first think of, okay? A, a happy person is one who looks and expresses happiness and joy and exuberance and all these things. It's kind of the surface level of what happiness is. Uh, but then he says that a second dimension is what he calls the vitality and flow of your life. Are you interested and engaged in life? Is there energy there? He actually, you know, the, the, the phrase that we use, um, in the zone. It's what he used to describe the second dimension. Are you in the zone? And are you enjoying it? The third dimension is what he calls tranquility. Tranquility. And he says tranquility is the cornerstone of happiness. He actually uses the word attunement. Are you in tune with yourself and your surroundings? He says it is the possession of an inner surety or confidence, stability and balance. A person relaxes or blossoms in this state and living seems to be quite natural for them. He says it is the feeling of being carefree. So when you think of Jesus saying, follow me, my load is light. Similar idea. The fourth thing, and I think this one's a really critical one. So our felt emotions, uh, the vitality and flow of life, uh, tranquility. This fourth one is um, our non-conscious state of emotional health, or what he calls our mood propensity. For example, I think we all know people that it seems like in, in, in most, of their, most of the aspects of their life, they, they work hard, they're high energy, they seem to be very pleasant emotionally, um, but maybe when they get by themselves, there's nobody around, or when they don't have something to do, they're kind of afraid to be at home by themselves. They're afraid of the thoughts that might come in. So he, he says, where do, you, where do you go when the activity of life isn't keeping your conscious mind active? Who are you when 
you're just <laughs> existing. Where do, you, where do your emotions go? It's the fourth dimension. I think it's a pretty robust description of happiness, at least from a secular perspective. I would generally state that to be a happy person, and we're going to get to what the scriptures say about this here in a moment, to be a happy person is to possess an inner, to kind of summarize all these things, to be a happy person is to possess an inner peace and confidence with oneself and world that empowers them to actively engage life with interest and skill, bringing fruitfulness, joy, and satisfaction to their lives. I think it makes sense that the Psalms start out with this word happy. It's the beginning of the wisdom literature. Wisdom literature points us to what it means to live a skillful life. It's also the question that philosophers for millennia have tried to address. What is the purpose of life? And they have come to the conclusion over all these years that, that, that the pursuit of felt happiness seems to be the goal of life. And so the wisdom literature assumes this. It assumes that we have this inner disposition as physical beings made in the image of God to pursue, to pursue happiness. So it is immediately directing where our, our felt emotions want to go. What is going to make me happy? So Nathaniel's already read it. I think Psalm 1, if we just look at some of the, the core pillars here, Psalm 1 provides four elements in the life of a happy person. First one, happy people are not wicked people. Well, what does it mean to be wicked? Psalm, psalms, well, they, they'll have a lot of descriptions of wicked people. Uh, there's, there's some psalms, Psalm 15 being one of them, that just describes here's what a righteous person is. Um, if, we are, if we are thinking that the psalms are coming off of the, the theology of the, of, the, of the law and the prophets, um, we would have to look at, really think, that, you know, the Ten Commandments are kind of the the summary of the, the lifestyle of the righteous person that comes out of, of, of the law of God, um, which means that the righteous person, so the wicked person would be opposite of this, the righteous person believes in and loves God and puts God first in their lives. That's the first and second commandment. Loves and is faithful to their family and neighbors, works hard to provide for others and the work of God, is honest and truthful in their speech and business dealings, and is content with what God has provided for them. The wicked person, like I said, is, is opposite of this. And a wicked person's life is one that gets progressively worse. Notice in, the, in, the, in Psalm 1, um, Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So there's, there's, they're walking, but then they come to a point where they're standing. Okay, Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So the wicked person's life eventually comes to a place of stagnation, right? opposite of, of active, vibrant, and engaged. The, the wickedness eventually gets you to a point where you're stuck where you're stuck. So that's the first thing that the Psalms, Psalm 1 says about happiness. Second thing, the happy person is one whose desire and delight is the law or instruction of God. So law here is a broad idea uh, for the instruction or the, or the guidance or the law of God. 
I want to point out it's not a desire or delight. It's not like in the top ten. Like, I delight in great food. All right? Nice automobiles. All the things that you delight in. The Bible's not one of the top ten. Actually, it's not the Bible. It's it, it, the law of instruction of God. It is the delight. It is the delight of the happy person. Now, many of us could say, well, I'm not a wicked person. I'm not a wicked person. I'm not the opposite of the Ten Commandments. Just like the rich young ruler, rich young ruler that went to Jesus Christ. Oh, I've done all of those things. But if we were to ask ourselves the question, is my primary delight and desire the law of God? That is a tough question. That is a tough question. It's not asking, it's not saying they read their Bibles consistently. It's not saying they memorize and study the Bible a lot. It says that they meditate on the law daily, morning and night. But that is a result of the primary thing. There is a delight and a desire, depending on the translation that you're reading, for the law of God. The Psalms address the hearts and affections. He is saying that the happy person is one who desires and longs for God's instruction. And that desire and in that desire and delight, they, they meditate and they read and they memorize on God's word. So why is it that the primary delight and desire of the happy person is the law of God? I think that the ultimate reason for this is that the, the primary intent of the law of God is to direct the reader to the promised child of Adam and Eve, the promised son who is going to bring life and conquer sin and death, the promised king from the line of Judah from Genesis 49, the promised prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18, the promised king of David from 2 Samuel 7, the suffering servant of Isaiah from the prophets, the person that the Gospels eventually identify as Jesus the Christ. The person who delights in the law of God is a person who delights in in their relationship and in their knowledge that they have with Jesus Christ. To, have, to delight in the instruction of God is to have your hopes set on the promise of life found in Jesus Christ. And everything that they then experience in life is in that lens. Which then leads us to the third thing. Happy people experience prosperity. The happy person has learned that delighting in and meditating on the law of God leads one to live in such a way that results in prosperity. The psalmist paints a beautiful metaphor in the image of a tree that was planted near a flowering stream. It's not a pond or a lake, it's moving water bringing new nutrients and life to that tree. This is the picture of prosperity. Prosperity is another one of these words like happy that we are kind of afraid of. Those of us that are like, we're not, you know, we're not uh, prosperity gospel preachers, right? 
So oftentimes the theme of prosperity is backed off on because we don't want to come across as that. But the scriptures are pretty clear here at the introduction to Psalms. Happiness and prosperity are on the forefront of the message here. This tree is a prosperous tree. It's fruitful in its season, okay? A happy person is not somebody who's always generating a ton of productivity. There are times of growth and pruning, as Jesus describes the process of abiding, right? They are fruitful in their season, but their leaf is always green. This is an evergreen plant tree that he's talking about here. So there's always growth and vitality in life. Sometimes it's storing up the resources to produce more fruit. Sometimes it's producing fruit. But the leaf never withers or drops. Prosperity means to be successful, means to be effective, and it can include and does include to some degree material prosperity, but doesn't mean rich. Doesn't necessarily mean rich. The happy person is not a person who is prosperous, not just in one or two areas of life. So I think that we, we have a tendency to look at a person in one or two spheres and say, oh, you know, they, they've got to be happy. They've got this going for them. Now, the happy person has it all going for them. That's what he's saying. Now, we're going to read some Psalms where it does not seem like they've got it all going for them. All right, And we have to recognize that happiness, um, in terms of how it's described here, and I think, I think this philosopher does a great job, um, there are going to be seasons where we don't feel happy. We don't have that first dimension of expressed emotions that reflect joy and exuberance. Right? It's the deeper things of peace and tranquility, especially in the midst, in the midst of suffering. Okay, so we start to see some of these gospel themes from the, from, the, from the letters present within what the Psalms are talking about here because the Psalms are going to go on and they're going to, they're going to be people that wish they were dead. They're going to be people that, this Psalm 88, the black Psalm, and we're going to hit it. Um, there is nothing good in, the, in Psalm 88. There's nothing good. And so we as broken people long for happiness. God knows this. He's made us for this. The Psalms and the wisdom literature know this. Ecclesiastes is full of this kind of language. It is our felt need. Uh, we've got three books out there on the Psalms. N.T. Wright's book, C.S. Lewis's book, and Tim Keller's book. Um, Tim Keller and N.T. Wright have both been said they're modern-day C.S. Lewis's. So kind of, they're all in kind of this vein of Psalms in, in reality. They're not, scholarly, they're not scholarly by nature. There's scholarship in them. Um, and, but one of, so N.T. Wright approaches it from the standpoint of time and space and matter, physicality, and recognizing that we as human beings created in God's image with flesh, and we will have resurrected fleshly bodies for eternity. There is a, there, God is wanting to express himself in our fleshly bodies and he wants us to be vibrant. And in these fleshly bodies, he has given us the felt desire to be happy. Happy. So in the midst of, of great joy and exuberance that we are experiencing in life, the Psalms direct us to express that happiness in a healthy way. And in moments where we feel like we'd rather be dead, the Psalms are also instructing us 
on how to address that. Fourth, happy people rest in God's embrace. And this is another one of the altar's uh, translations that I, I really like. Um, the ESV says, uh, the way of the righteous, God knows the way of the righteous. Um, altar says, the Lord embraces. Okay, there's a, there's a hugging. <laughs> There's, a, there's an expression of love in God's knowledge. There's, these, these terms just can't be stuck with one word. There's a, God knows us. God knows those who are, are striving to know him and to walk in him and to not be wicked and to, to discover the happiness that he provides. And, and he, he knows and is embracing. And so the, the happy person um, rests in God's embrace. Rests in God's embrace. This is the idea of, 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 of this uh, Hebron's tranquility, the cornerstone of happiness, resting in God's embrace. The wicked are not like trees that are solid and steadfast. They are like the waste of wheat grain, the stalk, thrown away and driven by the wind where they will decompose and provide food for the tree. They are not settled, they are fleeting and rootless, and they will not stand in the judgment that God will bring to all humanity, which is coming. Judgment is a pretty strong theme in the Psalms. So now we come to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 immediately begins with the psalmist in somewhat of a state of bewilderment in regard to the actions of the nations who have postured themselves against the Lord and His anointed. Now, couple things here. Psalm 1 is all about the individual and their walk with God. Are they going to seek God or be a righteous person? Are they going to be a wicked person? Psalm 2 is about the nations. So you have the full scope here. You've got the details of everyday life, of individuals. You've got governments and nations all within this scope. Dealing with the intricacies and details of what it means to live well, and the eternal state of our souls. So we have here at the beginning this, this broad, broad sweep of, of subjects and topics. All of, all of life. Okay? All of life. And we enter into Psalm 2 from Psalm 1 asking ourselves, hmm, do I delight in God's law? Am I a wicked person? Am I happy and prosperous? What will be my end when judgment comes? Will I be like a tree or will I be without a leg to stand on? How will God judge me? And so we come into this, this second psalm with all of those ideas and then we come face to face with this the primary subject of Psalm 2, which is the anointed of God, which is an, always in reference to this promised child, king, son, prophet, suffering servant. It's always in reference to what the New Testament reveals to be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the Messiah means the anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. The nations and the peoples of this world are in a state of rejecting God and in a state of rejecting Jesus. We know this. They, it's in contrast to the person from Psalm 1. So it says that God's response is one of, of laughter, derision, and anger. 
I think we can understand the derision and anger. God is seeing what he what God sees in the nations is arrogance, foolishness, and blindness. And, and he laughs. I mean, you know, all of us, I think, we've either done something or we've certainly have observed other people where they do something so stupid, which brings harm to themselves and others, but it is so kind of like nonsensical that we have a little chuckle, right? This, at least I do. I'll be honest, I do. My, and Anna, she's a much more sensitive and empathetic person, which I have almost zero capacity for. Um, she kind of gets on me about it, but it's just this, how can, how can we? I do it to myself. How can we be just so ridiculous? Well, it's because we are so arrogant and we are running away from the source of happiness. And, and, to, and to God, this makes him angry because he loves us and cares for us and he's created us and wants to see us do well. All right? But, and, and this, it, but he laughs because it, it's just, so, sometimes it is just so ridiculous to him. It's an interesting dynamic. At some point, God get, will give the nations to the Son to rule. In fact, that has, that's already occurred. Colossians chapter 1. He is preeminent over all things on earth and in heaven, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities. Jesus Christ rules, and he will come, and he's going to bring judgment and so Psalm 2 ends with this, this warning. Rather than reject and rebel against God, worship and fear him. Rather than reject the Son, what's it say? Kiss him. So we have God embracing us at the end of chapter 1. We have an admonishment for us to kiss the Lord in fealty and devotion to him. Affectionately pursue and embrace God. And then Psalm 2 concludes, and this, I just, these are the things that just, I get just little tingles. The last line, happy, all who shelter in him. The first line of the introduction of the book of Psalms begins with the word happy. And the last line in the introduction of the book of Psalms begins with the word happy. God is after our happiness and prosperity. In contrast to the restlessness, rage, discontent, and grumbling of the peoples of the world who reject and rebel against God. So all these, all these psychological conditions here are not good. The person who finds refuge in God experiences happiness. So if we look at, if we just summarize... What makes a happy person out of chapters 1 and 2? Happy people are those who delight in the instruction of God, the purpose of which is to point us to the anointed one of God, Jesus, and meditate on it regularly, meditate on him regularly, causing them to live in worship of God in such a way that brings prosperity, security, and peace. And two, happy people are those who orient their lives under the authority of God and his Son, in whom they take refuge, leading to a sense of security contentment, and peace. Now, neither of these things start with a task to do. Both are orientations of the heart. And these orientations, it's our orientations, what we believe, what we love, 
our affections that lead us to do things or not do things. But if we, if we leave here saying, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to start reading my Bible. Well, that's good. But it's not what he's talking about. Where are the, what is, what, what do we believe? What do we, what do we love? And so if we look at Psalm 1, it's addressing what we delight. Psalm 2, it's, direct, it's, it's addressing what we put our refuge in. So what we delight is kind of the one end of the continuum of, okay, when I am feeling great, and the other end of the continuum is, man, when I am feeling like I've got to run for cover. So Psalm 1 and 2 address this full scope. Address this full scope. So we have to ask the, ourselves the questions to get to our hearts. When I am delighted, what is it that delights me? Do I ever find delight in the law of God? Do I ever find delight in, in the person and work of Jesus? Is that my primary delight? So that's addressing this positive end. Second, when I am in a place of vulnerability and weakness and I am longing to find some safety, either physical safety or emotional safety, where do I turn for refuge? Those are the two questions. So we, we have to first look at what is it that we are loving and hoping in? What is it that we are delighting in? What is it, what is it that we're turning to for refuge? For those of for any here who have not made Jesus Christ their Savior, the pursuits that you pursue for your delights and the pursuits that you pursue for refuge, if they have not failed you yet, they will. And your experience of that failure, your experience of lost happiness, at least at that first level, well, all the levels, your experience of that is your heart telling you what you are delighting in and taking refuge in is not ultimately working. You're not in line with how God has created you. God has created you to find happiness in his son. That's what, that's what your pain is telling you. If you do know Christ, many of us might be sitting here experiencing some feelings of shame and guilt right now, acknowledging that there are many things that we delight in, many things that we take refuge in, but we can honestly say that you know what? They're not always righteous. They're not always the good things. And this is why the Psalms are here. They, they continue to point us and instruct us for, for when we have pursued the false delights, when we have pursued the false refuges, they are, they are a reminder. Or when we're just experiencing the, the frailty and the weakness of, a, of the sinful world that we live in. They're, they're instructing us to say, hey, stay on the path, keep walking. Don't stand in the counsel of the wicked. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Keep walking. Keep being nourished by the sun. Grow in your delight of the word, which they help us in, the Psalms do. Grow in the refuge that God is, which they help us in. But we have to recognize that what we've been doing has to, it's the life of repentance. Martin Luther says the life of the Christian is the life of, of repentance. And we can see in Jesus, we can see in Jesus, you know, Jesus, Jesus models, but he's already, but he's gone before and done it. We can see in his life, when he's worshiping God, he's quoting the Psalms. He's, he delights when he sees the word of God fulfilled through him. Psalm 118, Jesus quotes, 
When he's in a place of, of utter desperation and vulnerability and weakness, he quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's orienting himself to find refuge in a good thing, in his place where he doesn't feel like God is, is even there for him anymore. And so Jesus has gone before, Jesus has modeled this. But because Jesus has gone through it, and because we've been baptized into Jesus' life and his death, his death in his life, and has put his Holy Spirit in us, we too can follow Jesus. We too can, can grow in our delight of Jesus. We too can grow in our finding of our refuge in, in God through Jesus Christ because he's gone before and done it. And he's called us to live in the power of that to do it. And one of the ways that we do it is by deepening in the, in the word of God and in the Psalms.